everyone starts to wonder, well, how the heck did the South Carolina Supreme Court reach a decision that the unborn have essentially no legal protections under the South Carolinian Constitution? Where did those judges come from? And now you start to see, yeah, wow, the progressives gamed this 100 years ago. Not because they predicted there was going to be an overturning of Roe or any of these central questions, but they, they constructed the rules of a game that allows them to maximize their favorable outcomes. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. Here we are in 2023, some months into it. And uh, it seems like the country is in somewhat bad shape. You know that, of course, the country is in somewhat bad shape. But here we specialize in diagnosing the problem, coming up with solutions, and getting to work. And my guest this week is someone who has been a good friend from afar. I met several years ago now when he was doing something he's not doing now. He'll explain that to you. And now the conservative firebrand Theo Wold, who finds himself in the great state of Idaho, has joined me this week. If you happen not to know Theo, I guarantee you something, you are going to love him by the end of this episode. So with that, Theo, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks for you, coming back to the Imperial City. <laughs> yeah. Having lived in the Rocky Mountain West, you know, I, I applaud you for, for heading out there, um, but I question your judgment about coming back to DC for, for a few days. Yeah, even for a few days. Uh, I think the funny thing is, you know, I, I went to school here, uh, undergrad. and Was that Georgetown? I, yeah. And then I spent, you know, obviously time working uh, for Senator Lee and then in the White House. And this is the first time being back where there there isn't the same hold or appeal with the city. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, when you're young and you're ambitious and it's the new Rome, right? It's the, the beating heart of the empire. Um, it, there's, there's something to be said for being here and, and figuring out how it works. Um, and this time it coming in from the live, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the airport, all I could think about were all the, uh, commercial leases that are, you know, obviously empty. Um, you know, downtown is kind of a war zone. Yeah. It's the a real problem cities. when, when the, the mayor of Washington, who's not known as very conservative. Yeah. <laughs> it's Lent. I'm searching for the charitable term. <laughs> is pressuring the federal government to get their employees yeah. back into the office, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a real problem for her, all kidding aside. Well, and, and, it, and it really is one of those examples of, of uh, you know, how progressive policy leads to this cascade of, of bad outcomes. Because, I mean, so the commercial, you know, facilities and, and buildings are largely empty. Um, but all the restaurants are gone. You know, the tailor that I used to go to a couple blocks from the White House, he's closed. Uh, the cobblers are all gone. So all those small mom and pop businesses, um, they got hit by this idea of, of closing down, down downtown and then going to a remote work policy for the federal government. So we could spend an episode talking about that with you. And in fact, you and I kind of got to know one another professionally during that time. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But we don't want to depress the audience. We, we know that story, <laughs> That's my specialty. Right? Yes, yeah. I know. And I'm yeah. not going to let you do that to us because I also know inside that realism, it isn't really pessimism, it's realism. Mm. And I know that our audience appreciates that, is someone who's willing to fight, mm. which is why I introduced you as a conservative firebrand. So as is the custom of this show, and certainly my custom as a Southerner, tell us your story. I mean, how in the wide world of sports did, did you get out to be in Idaho doing some things with the law? after having served here in the previous administration? 
Yeah. I mean, at some, at some level, I, I usually say um, my story is, uh, to paraphrase Lincoln, who was uh, paraphrasing uh, Thomas Gray, it's the short uh, annals of the poor. Uh, I grew up in a very poor working class family in uh, one of the poorest regions of the country. Um, I like to say, you know, we're so poor in the Central Valley, we make Appalachia look like Monaco. People um, don't appreciate that about that part of California. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you look at any social indices uh, for for that region of the country. If it was its own state, it would be the seventh largest state in the union. We would have the fewest college graduates per capita in, in the entire nation. Uh, we have the fewest available hospital beds. We have the highest rates of cuticle disease, uh, teenage pregnancies. Back, um, back to the pessimism. Yeah, well, I mean, and no. I think, I think it, you know, growing up uh, where I did in, in Stockton, which has always been the first majority minority city in America, and always a very violent place, always struggled with violent crime. Um, I was informed from a very early age about sort of the challenges uh, confronting our, our republic in a modern age. You know, uh, the depreciation of manufacturing jobs. Um, you know, the struggle of cities that have a, a, um, a you know a, a vanishing tax base to provide you know emergency services and law enforcement. So, my my childhood growing up in a working class family really informed my view on policy um, and what I wanted to do with my life. Um, so I uh, you know studied political philosophy uh, as an undergrad, and I, I really lucked out. Even at Georgetown, I lucked out in falling in with a good crowd of, of peers, but also I had some really instrumental mentors, uh, Father James Shaw being one, one of them in particular. Um, and then, you know, educated mostly by Straussians, and that was also a crucial and important. It gave me an appreciation for deep reading um, and texts, you know, treating um, ideas seriously. Um, and you know, so from there, uh, struggle with that 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 choice that so many young conservatives have: should I go be an academic, um, um, or should I you know go to law school um, and do that like the you know the, the active life versus the contemplative life kind of dispute? Went to law school. I I clerked um, in the federal district court in Puerto Rico, um, which was essentially uh, Stockton on an island. Um, you know, that had to be quite an experience. It really was. Because um, I think, you know, if you want to test uh, the vitality of of American governance, if you want to see um, what the application of uh, congressional policymaking looks like, don't go to states. Um, don't go to New York or Miami. Go Go to the insular territories. And there you'll see what the federal government, which essentially has a free hand, um, you'll see what the federal government is capable of doing. In terms of, of of how it can wreck people's opportunities, their upward mobility, but also uh, what it's not doing. And so Puerto Rico, I mean, you know, the stories about Puerto Rico's struggles are are widely documented financially, socially, economically, um, the flight from the island, um, you know. And so again, a lot of people do district court clerkships or things, and they're in SDNY or you know they they're at the courthouse in Chicago. And you're in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico uh, was. Um, you know, robbed at gunpoint multiple times. Um, my my judge that I clerked for, uh, a Reagan appointee, very good man. Um, you know, during his career on the bench, he had seven attempts on his life. Uh, would carry in the courthouse. Um, you know, and so I, I think you see there uh, both the limits of Article Three um, and and what it can do. But at the same time, um, in Puerto Rico, everyone 
was desperate to get into federal court. He tried to find a, an angle for a slip and fall case to get into federal court. And, and it was because there was a recognition that the federal courts were above board, uh, that there was a real application of the rule of law, um, and that you were going to get a fair shake. And I think that that is also you know, a testament to even in the, the far-flung territories of, of America, there is still a functioning notion of the rule of law. So from there, uh, clerked in the D.C. Circuit for Janice Rogers Brown, uh, who was a personal hero. That had to be a great experience. Tremendous. Um, probably the, the greatest mentor outside of my, my maternal grandfather on, on my life. Uh, grew up uh, as sort of like a, as many young Californians did. I mean, she was the dissenting justice on the California Supreme Court on any number of just instrumental, significant uh, issues, including abortion and the size of government and um, executive authority of the governor. Um, so clerking for her was, uh, was a remarkable opportunity, but, um, you know, the D.C. Circuit's a big deal for lawyers and that kind of thing. But for me, it was really the chance to be a student of hers. Um, and, and from there, worked for Senator Lee on the Senate Judiciary Committee and then ended up in the Trump White House and uh, still have the PTSD from that. But. We'll talk about that some, but <clears throat> Senator Lee is one of my closest friends in, in all of Congress and a longtime close friend of Heritage and for many of us who are movement conservatives, a hero. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, a, a moniker he, he would not accept because of his humility. His modesty. Yeah, that's right. What was it like to work for him? Uh, again, I mean, Trina, so the funny story with, with my job with Senator Lee was, um, you know, it, it started essentially as, as an internship. And they, they had this, this posting, and um, you know, I went to Judge Brown about it, and I said, um, you know, my colleagues here on the court, co-clerks, they're all going to big firms and these really exciting fellowships at DOJ. And uh, I'm thinking about taking this, this internship. And Judge Brown said to me, you know, Theo, the opportunity to work for a good man who's actually in the arena is infinitesimally rare. She said, you know, when I was first approached by Governor Pete Wilson to take a job in his administration, but not for me. I liked what I was doing, and uh, you know, I, I had a good job and a good trajectory. And then I got to sit down with Governor Wilson and uh, take the measure of the man. And I, I knew that uh, this was someone who had principle, who had real honor, and um, you know, it wouldn't just be fun working for him, but that it would be important and meaningful work. And so she said, you know, look, it it may not pay much, and it may not be prestigious, but. This is this is something you should you should probably do, and she was right. I, I mean, Senator Lee has not only been a, a mentor of mine and um, like a great patron, I, I would say, but um, he he's a man who, because of his personal virtue, um, is able to wrestle with uh, hard questions um, and uh, disagree with his own party and also obviously his Democrat colleagues. Um, but, and this is often, you, I'm sure you hear this all the time, you know, be disagreeable without, you know, being personally disagreeable. Um, but uh, to maintain that civility, and I think that's but because you, he's, he's moored in, in some real meaningful principles that are not part of the 24-hour news cycle. Yeah, and it's, it's just impossible or 
almost impossible for anyone to malign him. Yeah. I mean, so, some people do because that's kind of where the radical left has, has gone, but um, it doesn't change his approach. No. <clears throat> and it also doesn't make him less conservative. No, it doesn't make him less conservative. And I, I think, you know, um, someone once said to me like, well, you know, you, you're like birds of a feather with Senator Lee, like, you know, these like egghead, you want to really think about the ideas. And I, I think that's a very, uh, it's, un, it's an unfair caricature of Senator Lee because he does have an immense intellect and he is very mm-hmm. thoughtful, but um, push him and he will fight back um, and push him and you will not move him. From, from his principled position. Um, and, and that's something I, I uh, you know, growing up in the neighborhood I did and around um, the men that, you know, that raised me, my maternal grandfather, my dad, they were all working class men who worked with their hands. And you know, the joke in my family was always, well, the, the kinds of scars that Theo's going to get in his, his hands are going to come from, from paper cuts, you know, not swinging a hammer or something. And I think for me, Senator Lee was important because he was one of the first men I met who is a man and convicted about his virtue and, um, you know, his his principles. But he's not ashamed of being an intellect. He's no. not He's not ashamed of being rigorous and thinking through hard problems or, you know, making what some people would call esoteric or heady arguments. Um, not ashamed of that at all. And I, I think that's um, not just an important niche for him, but I think that's an important facet of any Republican government to have people who are willing to make arguments that are not going to be easily translatable into 24-hour news cycle sound bites. Yeah, and he's, he's really become not just the conscience of the Senate, but for us at Heritage, often referred to as as the leading intellectual voice in, in the policy space, the conscience of the movement. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm not sure there's anything I'd, I'd disagree with Senator Leon, at least yeah. in any significant way. Yeah. There might be some marginal differences of opinion. I know yeah. I can speak for everyone at Heritage, including our, our wonderful folks in the Mies Center about that, our, our legal center. It's just he's always open to the conversation. And so I imagine in some weird, ironic way, that was good preparation for going into the Trump administration. So tell us about that. That's where you and I met. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was in a way, right? Um, uh, you know, because I, I think I often tell young people, don't don't spend the best part of your youth on the Hill. I mean, it's it's a good proving ground, but you should not look at it as a career. You should look at it as a game that you've got to figure out how to play. Learn the rules and test theories, and then get out of there and and do do something where you can manifest that skill set. Every game comes to an end, and you can win games. Yeah. You don't have to lose them. That's right. That's right. So that year on the hill, it it was important to have you know a principled figure, a mentor like Senator Lee, um, but also learn how the hill works, and I think appropriately calibrate my expectations for what is possible for, for, for Congress to accomplish. <laughs> which, um, which means to lower them? Yes. Yes. Decisively. Decisively. Um, I think the, the irony there is also that there was whiplash, right? You go from this um, Latter-day Saint, nice, civil, courteous office to what was essentially trench warfare, where your own colleagues are trying to kill you off, um, either because you had an idea that they didn't, um, you got into the Oval when uh, they couldn't. Um, and so the dysfunction, the, the personality dysfunction 
of a White House, which I, I argue, you know, read, read your accounts going back to the Carter administration or earlier. It's been there for most of the modern presidencies. It's just in part attributable to the arrangement. It's, of become, power. A, it's become a feature of that power, yeah. right? Yes. And, and arguably also the disorder that's common in most of us in, in modern American secular life. Um, that, was, that was shocking. Because you you went from sort of like the Lee world, um, where everyone was committed to sort of the vision of you know principled, um, you know smart governance to man, it's it's a free for all, and not everyone here is actually committed to the same agenda, let alone the president's agenda. Um, so, you know, um, as I said, tr- trench warfare. But um, I enjoyed the White House. I mean, I think it changed me. I think uh, I was telling a group of high school kids the other day, you know, it's Frodo's not the same, even though he destroys the ring, right? It leaves a, a psychic um, scar, if you will. I think that was true of my, my time from, from the White House. But I think, we, I, think we did, I think we did important work. I think we did, we accomplished a great deal of good for the country. And um, I... I still remain one of those who would argue that President Trump is is a unique figure. Um, never once heard President Trump say, uh, show me the polling on this um, or let's message test that with a focus group first. And I, I think that's a unique feature. He's he, for whatever someone may say about him. He's a real leader. Yeah. Yes. And we need more of that. In that's America. right. Decisiveness. Uh, and and the ability in that in that way that's unique uh, to to figures like him, I mean the man has a high EQ. Um, he's he's very capable of producing loyalty and and understanding the motivations or intentions of of people who are either working for him or people who want to do a deal with him. And um, I I I think that is uh, that's a necessary mm-hmm. uh, trait of of good leadership. So what was your role? In the Trump White House. So I, I started as a special assistant to the president uh, for domestic policy. And I worked, I was kind of on a Lynn lease program, if you will, between. The Brim- historian in me really appreciates that. Yeah. To you. Yeah. Uh, uh, between Brimberg on DPC and, and Stephen Miller. And I started working out uh, on immigration policy. Um, and then I finished uh, my time in the White House as a deputy assistant to the president for domestic policy. And in between, had worked in the Office for American Innovation and and for for Jared Kushner, and then ended the the, the time in the administration the last couple of months over at DOJ as the acting assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Policy. So, and what would you say? You have to check your modesty. Um, what was the the achievements of of the Trump mm-hmm. administration that you had uh, a big role in that you're most proud of? I mean, the one that I'm most proud of. Um, was uh, the the effort to to reinstate uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority workers in their jobs, um, and I you know you'll have to forgive me because this is essentially a, a progressive talking point, but in that sense you know politics is is personal. Um, these were you know hardworking Americans who played by the rules. They did what they were told: go and get an education, study STEM. Uh, and you'll get programmer or engineer or IT jobs. Uh, you can be a manager um, at an entity that you and I would both agree should not exist. The Tennessee Valley Authority was a creation of President Roosevelt. It's a 
It's an autonomous agency that's also a corporation. Figure that one out. And yet, and yet, it, to your earlier reference, it, that is the game. Yeah, and these 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 good people are trying to play the rules of that game. Yeah, and 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 moreover, the intention in creating that agency was to provide economic opportunity to one of the most dispossessed regions of the country for Americans. And so when the Tennessee Valley Authority announced that they were going to fire these Americans and replace them with HB, H-1B uh, visa holders from abroad and throw in there the, the wrinkle that this agency produces electricity for eight uh, American, southeastern American states, including two nuclear power plants. So there was, you know, some some real concerns about who these foreign nationals would would be and what they would be doing. Um, for me, it, you know, it reminded me of all the number of times I saw my father laid off and replaced by foreign labor that was cheaper, um, that didn't have to comply with state, California state regulations or licensing requirements. Um, and, you know, there was a there was a fairness question there, but it was also, I think, um, at some level, a question of rectitude. We campaigned on on fighting for these kinds of people. And now this is in our squarely in our wheelhouse. Any concerns people may have about intervening in the, the private market, the free market, as with Disney workers or ATT, that's not here. These are government employees. So, you know, we came up with the idea that um, the president should fire board, members of the board um, a- until they relented. Uh, and I you know, don't want to belabor the complicated legal questions here, but the CEO of the Tennessee Valley Authority is insulated from, from you know, removal authority of the president. But the board wasn't. Um, and essentially, you know, constructing kind of a, a diehard terrorist scenario. We're going to let go of one of these board members every hour until you reinstate these workers. I love the approach. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the thing is... Um, a lot of consternation internally. And that was one of those moments where you realize you're on a, a trapeze and you don't have a net below you. I was told by a number of senior figures in the White House, if this goes south, if we're challenged legally on these dismissals, uh, you know, if one of these workers shows up and says something that's discordant or criticizes the president from the cameras, that's on you. And, uh, you know, you do a gut check and, wow, this could be bad. Uh, but it's worth it because this this is who we said we were coming to fight for. And we got the workers their jobs back and, you know, and made for a nice you know, talking point uh, for the comms people and all that. So delivered something for people that they could, you know, communicate to the American people. But for me, it was in meeting these workers, uh, mostly from Tennessee. These were these were the people who raised me um, and being able to one to one. This was the wrong and we fixed the wrong that was deeply rewarding. Yeah, and 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 delivering on a promise is yeah. is something that those people and and unfortunately most Americans don't expect the government to do anymore. No. And it seems as if that's one of the things that we have to fix. And so just to not only continue this this narrative of thread of what has motivated you to do what you're doing and the reason I'm drawing that out is because I I find it interesting and I'm the host of the show, but also because I know a lot of the people who watch or listen to this show are contemplating this ask that 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 I make that a lot of people are making now, which is whenever conservatives get a chance to be in power again in the executive branch in D.C., mm. we need thousands of good people yeah. to come here. They don't need to expect to stay 10 years, 30 years. I, I often phrase it as tithing to your republic. 
Yeah. And then and then go back to whatever home is, or in your case, go find a new home. In yeah. your case, it's Idaho. But have you what, what have you taken from your DC experience to not just work in Idaho, but life in Idaho? Because yeah. one of the things we're ultimately what we're trying to conserve isn't really just regular order in government, as important as that is, but all the best parts of living life well. Yeah. I mean, this was a, a conversation you and I had years ago. I I was, you know, um, quite taken by your insight at the time that uh, the people who run the empire here in D.C., they really need to spend more time out of D.C. And not in the gimmick way, not this right. idea of like, well, well, we'll move this agency to Omaha and, and this bureaucracy to, you know, to Denver and that way. DC won't exist anymore. No, you, you've just moved things around on the playing field. Um, get out of DC and see the consequences of even conservative policy, even you know malformed or poorly thought through conservative policy, and see the burdens that it has imposed on, in particular, working families, but um, you know, the people of this country. So I think for... For my wife and I, um, you know, our, our motivation in part in getting out of D.C., um, you know, the summer of love was bad in, in this city. And I think for, for the even despite the concentration of law enforcement in D.C., um, it was very clear to us that, uh, that if things went bad, there, there wouldn't be anyone coming to, to, to help us out. Um, and it's not an exaggeration. No. And, and you go to a place, uh, you know, like Eagle, Idaho or Meridian, Idaho, and right away you, you see, um, there is still an America in America. Um, when people ask me, well, what's Idaho like? I say, it's the most American place I've ever lived. Uh, neighbors actually not only learn your name, um, but and they want to, yeah, they genuinely want to, they want genuinely to want to. But they actually uh, give a dang about what you're doing, um, you know, what, what you care about, what your plans are, that connective tissue that used to be common, you know, what, what the left will always call community. Um, it, it actually exists. Uh, um, there is a, um, a pride and um, a commitment still to the traditions and rituals that are central to, I think, Republican citizenship, um, not just the ones that we do at a, a ball game, like singing the anthem, but, but um, you know. These are really human. Human. Relationships. De- deeply, deeply human and deeply humane in, in cultivating a, a certain, you know, uh, not just civility, but, but like that, that sort of civic religion that that Lincoln saw as so so important so central to the American psyche that still exists and I and look it's under siege um and it's it is um it's challenged uh by the predominant um sort of uh media entertainment complex it's it's a deluge of um of you know secularism and um you know, progressive ideology but it, it's still there. So I think the thing I learned from from D.C. now being in the hinterlands in one of the far-flung provinces, um, it's really important for especially the, the young folks coming up in the conservative movement. You, you've got to develop a real skill set. Because, you know, my grandfather used to say it's, it's really important that you be of some use 
you know, and in his mind, you know, being of use was, you know, obviously you either have a skilled trade or you're a lawyer or you're a doctor or you're an engineer. You build stuff, you help people. It's timeless advice, really. Yeah. And I think a lot of DC is, is fake. It's fake. It's skill sets that will never really actually um, matter in the contests and, and the confrontations that will be central to, to saving the Republic. So I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll say often to, to, to young people, um, stop, you know, who work on the Hill, stop calling ledge services to write your bills. Learn to write statutory text. And you'll do it poorly, especially if you have only a passing familiarity with the law. But here's the thing. There are thousands of statutes on the books that you can study. Some of them good, some of them bad. Um, So your model is there. All you have to do is apply yourself and start to figure out how that works. You go to a red state capital like uh, Boise, and there's a real need. They don't have a full-time legislature. The members of the legislature don't even have staff. So, you know, they're reading bills, they're amending them, they're writing their own, all in sequence on a short-term three-month session. You you arrive in a place like that and you say, ah, I can help you write text to ban drag shows. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I can help you write um, statutory text that would enable local law enforcement to work in, in concert with federal immigration authorities. I know, I, I, you know, I don't know everything about that issue, but I know how to draft a statute. That's a real skill. That's a real ability that, that will have direct application and can be of immense assistance. And I'll just underscore that, yeah. for, pardon the, the brief interjection, that I didn't know anything about the importance of that when I left Wyoming Catholic College and went to Texas Public Policy Foundation. I knew about the ideas and the policy and put the right people in the right spot and then give them the power to go do their thing and the relational side of visiting with legislators. But the point is, about three months into the first session that that where I was leading TPPF through that, I realized, oh my gosh, we have so few people, especially on our side, yeah. who can draft bill text. And I know some people listening or watching this say, well, listening to or watching this are saying this is kind of esoteric. It's It's where the rubber meets the road. In state legislative sessions, for that matter, in city council meetings, because you got to draft the yeah. ordinances, yeah, and certainly at the federal level, and <coughs> and here at Heritage, we we deeply prize those colleagues who are really good drafters of bill text, and even we don't have a whole lot of them, and and I just know that if the movement is the conservative movement is going to succeed, people will take your advice and 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 they'll do it, and just like with any new skill, you know, whether it's a, a, a sport or something intellectual, something professional, you're not going to be good at it at first. No, but we need more people to be willing to do it because those are the game changing kinds of skills that the movement needs to succeed. I, I think that's right, and and again, um, I think you know, I'm part of our move. Obviously, was for for our children so they could grow up in some some semblance of an America. Right. Um, Because I hear stories about what California was like, um, you know, what Michigan was like. Um, But I didn't grow up in in that reality. So part of it was that. But part of it was also a commitment to the idea that red states, this this whole theory of federalism, them being, you know, the incubators of, you know, laboratories of democracy, that that's a, a meaningless canard. That's a that is a trite cliche. If red state legislatures and red state governors don't have the resources to push what we would think would constitute red state policy, 
Um, what, what's on shelf for them? Uh, it's you know what the lobbyists cook up or the regional you know, subsidiaries of national lobbying groups um, or you know think tanks that don't always have, not always have the purest of intentions. Um, so you know learning and, and, and developing these skills, this is, this is a real opportunity for even the youngest, most inexperienced Hill staffer to develop a real niche and then go home. And as Judge Brown says, she has a great speech she gave a couple of years ago about repointing a brick wall. That a, a skilled mason can can build a beautiful thing, right? And in, in putting together bricks and mortar. But even the strongest, most beautiful brick wall has to have the mortar resurfaced and what the technical term in masonry repointed. And part of our project, it's different at the federal government here in D.C., but part of our project in red states is repointing those walls and strengthening the the, the sort of defensive uh, arrangements against the onslaught of, of the modern progressive left. So if we do that, I, w- I want to be sure that we, we talk a little bit about policy, given given the depth with which you can do that before we, we wrap. Although we'll have you back plenty of times over the years <laughs> if, if you're willing what is what are the issues? What are the say top two or three issues, either at the state level or the federal level, that constitute repointing the wall well? Yeah, and and look, I, I'm going to bore a lot of your your audience, but I doubt it. Um, this this is you know sometimes people will say this is a bit esoteric, but for me right now they are what I call structural reforms, and it it is shocking the level of destruction that was wrecked by the early progressives to state constitutions um, and to the arrangement of state governmental powers. And then that was doubled down on in the 1970s. And look, as much as we may talk about a Reagan revolution or the 94 revolution and whether that had any salience, lasting impact in D.C. or not, what is true in state governments, we are essentially living in the progressives world. They designed the selection of uh, you know, court officials. They designed uh, balloting uh, and the way elections are conducted. Uh, they designed what prerogatives the bureaucracy has contra a governor um, and what authorities the governor has to either minimize or eliminate the bureaucracy. You want to talk about deep state. I mean, there, there are no more entrenched deep state actors. They're not as sophisticated um, and they don't have the same resources and there's no intel apparatus that they can rely on. You know, their intel apparatus is probably FBI and, and main justice here in D.C., but state bureaucracies are almost more entrenched than what we see in the federal government. So for me right right now, I would say one of the biggest policy areas is you've got to get these building block issues right. And, our, and, and the blueprint is easy. So take, for example, um, the selection of, of, um, you know, of judges. Uh, the way it works in so many red states, the progressives designed what was essentially called the Missouri Plan, which allowed trial lawyers... Um, and legal experts, academics from the academies that the left captured 20, 30, 40 years ago, to populate lists of names of who counts as a suitable uh, potential nominee to the courts. And a governor doesn't get to just pick a name. He has to go to the, he's bound by the list that's populated by these external interests that are not accountable in any way to the people. In fact, in many instances, the people aren't even aware 
of where their trial judges come from. Uh, and then the governor has to pick a name from this list, and that's usually the process. There's no political vote. There's no confirmation vote from a Senate. Uh, all insulated from the review of the people. And this is the game that the progressives played, right? Which was to say, we want enhanced direct democracy. It's always, whether it's you know the political primary system, that's direct democracy. Selection of senators, direct democracy. Um, same on the courts. We want direct democracy in the states, so we should have trial lawyers, members of the bar. They should pick our judges for them. Um, where our framers would have said, the governor is accountable to the people, just like the chief executive here in D.C. Um, he's a political actor, and whoever he chooses as his nominee is in part a political calculus. And if you don't like it, that's something you can hang over his head when he runs for re-election. Change it. Change it. At least you have the opportunity to change it. And then a confirmation vote shows you uh, whether or not the people's representatives in the legislature, or at least one chamber of the legislature, give their assent to the governor's choice. Checks and balances, if you will. Um, the fact that we're we are so so far removed from from that reality, and we don't even stop to think about that. And and some of your your listeners may say, well, you know, what the heck does this have to do with anything? Well, now in a post Dobbs world, everyone starts to wonder, well, how the heck did the South Carolina Supreme Court reach a decision that the unborn have essentially no legal protections under the South Carolinian Constitution? Where did those judges come from? And now you start to see, yeah, wow, the progressives game this 100 years ago, not because they predicted there was going to be an overturning of Roe or any of these central questions, but they they constructed the rules of a game that allows them to maximize their favorable outcomes. So I, so I think building block issues, I mean, another one that's really important to me that you know a number of fellows here at, at Heritage have written very persuasively about um, is, is defending one man, one vote. And eliminating, you know, passing prohibitions uh, against ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting, it's offered as direct democracy. It sounds so sweet. Yeah. Um, you'll, you'll end up with some choice that, that the public can live with. It's a complicated, confusing system. Um, it has, it, it gives even more authority to the nameless, faceless bureaucrats who count ballots under the cover of, of secrecy or darkness. Um, and the systems, the states that have adopted these systems or the jurisdictions that have, obviously they're all far left progressive jurisdictions and the outcomes have been abysmal. I mean, there have been actual races under ranked choice voting that have had to be entirely rerun because the counting was inaccurate, but only after outside third party organizations notified uh, in the city of Oakland, for example, that they had counted a school board race wrong. That's a building block issue. It's not, a, you know, an education savings account. It's, you know, it's not about the drag show prohibitions, but all of those prohibitions or those policy enactments won't matter if progressives can run the table in elections, if they can run the table on ju judicial selection. And that's, that's precisely what they're trying to do. And, and thankfully, a growing number of conservatives, whether they're policymakers or friends of heritage, people who follow your work, have become wise to that. Yeah, and and I, the optimist in me says, and I don't mean this in any with any kind of hollow optimism that we, we're we're on the brink of turning the corner on that. But that isn't to say that there isn't a whole lot of hard work ahead, because the the funding on ranked choice voting, as an example, is pretty extensive. Yeah, and I know we've had a hand in 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 making that debt on arrival in a couple of states. But 
that's just a couple of states. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's marching forward in several. Yes. I mean, and, and you're right. Uh, look, I mean, the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, they, they raised $15.5 million because they know what's at stake. Uh, ranked choice voting, and Eric Holder uh, and his organization. Um, I know I know this is always like the conspiracy theory thing with the Soros Open Society. But it's um, true. And voting fairness. They're all in favor of ranked choice voting. They have high-level surrogates from Hollywood and you know, Senator Warren. They cut ads and they, they do campaigning all over the country to implement ranked choice voting. And I, and I think our side, you know, obviously we have to cultivate the the arguments for why it's bad, why this is wrong, why it will be deleterious to the, the full effect of your vote. Um, but then we've, we've, we've actually got to go out there and fight it. We have to train activists and, and citizens to inform the legislators to fight, to fight back. We must. So <laughs> last, last policy question before the, the final, final question, which has something to do about optimism, by the way, just to give you a heads up, <laughs> sort of get through your inner realism and think about something out, hopeful. Policy question is: uh, It's it's four years from now. No, two years from now. Uh, it's twenty twenty five. There's a conservative president, whoever he or she is, like a a real conservative who who's elected with a very ambitious, aspirational vision, and conservatives control both chambers of Congress. What does winning look like on the policy side? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, I think in part, and this is inside baseball stuff again, but in part, a Republican president, if there is one in January of 2025, has to be committed to taking on the deep state in a meaningful way. And the expectation from many Americans will be, uh, you know, are my, are my streets safer? Did you cut my taxes? Um You know, are you going to fix this problem uh, with the ideology that's targeting my children? But again, none of that's possible so long as the chief executive who sits in the Oval Office can only govern uh, by the fickle whim of the deep state. And the, the options that exist right now for a Republican president is full-on capitulation, a negotiated compromise. I'll govern in this area here, and you get everything else, deep state, and we'll just agree to just to leave each other alone, or... I can only impose my will as the elected executive. The people chose me. I can only express their will and govern accordingly if I deal with you first. And so I think winning looks like structural statutory reform of a lot of the administrative state, uh, reining in the abuses of the intel state, which may include jettisoning most of what was enacted post 9-11 with 702 and the surveillance state. Uh, and reanimating um, what I what I would call uh, Republican uh, citizenship, small R, and Republican governance, which is we've had it with the experts. We're not going to be governed by public health officials, um, you know, food scientists. Um, there are lots of problems potentially that can only be solved um, by intellectuals with advanced degrees and and those and you know credentials that are uh, arm, arm's length long. Um, but maybe those problems will just have to, to wait. Maybe they're not the province of, of government because for the, for the sake of transparency, for accountability, um, 
and and for really getting at the heart. I mean, because you know, conservatives have said this for for so long, and, and it's almost a phrase that means nothing now. Limited government, smaller government, shrink government. Um, that's that's all meaningless if the the small government you still have means a government ruled and, and controlled by Anthony Fauci's. If it's only government by an expert, I, I have a PhD and I know better than you do. Your common sense be damned. Then I, I would rather have a Leviathan. At least, at least then that, that antagonizes the citizenry and we can all find that to be re- abhorrent. So, so I think winning looks like restoring the notion that the people have the wisdom, they have the lived experience, they have, they have the capacity to govern themselves. Um, and, you know, I would love it. Uh, just as a plug for the with the issue set near and dear to my heart, I would love it if if Congress actually cleaned up the Immigration Naturalization Act and and made um, American citizens put American citizens not just economically at the front in terms of opportunities and, and the like, but also once again made clear that citizenship for naturalized Americans or Americans born here, citizenship means something, and there are privileges that come with citizenship that are important but also exclusive to citizens. And, and that's, that can only be done if Congress takes that seriously and, and really does some real work on the INA and some, some joint provisions there. Well, as you know, Heritage is, is with you enthusiastically on that reform. We can uh, perhaps look forward to that day. So last question, Theo, yeah. is in your, your most optimistic moments, <laughs> do you have those? You know, uh, yeah, now and then, yeah. So, I've got small kids, so I have to be. Yeah, you optimistic. have to be. You yeah. Have to be. So now that we've established, you do have these <laughs> these thoughts. So this this is not hollow optimism. What what constitutes your hopefulness? What mm. what is it? Is it policy? Is it life? Is it something just kind of um, amorphous, but just the, a feeling that America is going to get it right? I'm curious because I know you you're one of the great realists. I know. Mm. So when I need someone to rain on a parade. And I actually mean this as a compliment because I'm such an eternal optimist. I have yeah. to be sure I have friends who say, Kevin, you know, you got to check a little bit of that. Uh, you're not going to you're not going to win on that one. Um, but you have moments where you say, ah, I think we're going to do it. Why? Uh, so I guess I, you know, I've never really thought about that multifaceted answer. Um, it's a question of faith. Sure. Uh, at, at base. Um, um it's also a question of justice. We have better ideas. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, when, I, when I had my conversion to conservatism, you know, I grew up in a Union Democrat house. And when I became what I am now, I, I was convinced in part we, we are more virtuous people um, on, on our side in our movement. I know that's not true now. Um, we have plenty of, of vice and moral incontinence, but um, I think our ideas are better, and there is more um, there is more of a, a purity of intention. We want people to to live healthy, uh, productive, good, um, fertile lives. We we want people to be free, to um, enjoy their children. And to do those humane things that we talked about earlier, to form a family, to raise children. Um, and so, uh, you know, at some level, my most hopeful is, um, and, and this may be discordant to some, some of your, your listeners, but America is in many ways, 
um, we used to say like the full flowering of Western civilization, right? We're the greatest country in the history of the world. And we can debate and argue where that's true and where it's not. Um, but it's certainly the case that we may be the last exponents of Western civilization. Um, and at that, you know, when you're standing on the Acropolis or in Jerusalem looking through uh, the, the epochs of Western civilization, we owe it to this edifice to do our damnedest to defend it and, and to preserve it. So I think multifaceted, it's a sense of justice. It's a sense of um, a faith, obviously, and um, in a primordial way it's a commitment to our ancestors um yeah it's it strikes me as a really helpful response by the way it's it's interesting over the year of doing the show the different answers that that people give but they all kind of come back to the same thing uh, you've worded in a, a particularly eloquent way i will say which is essentially honoring our cultural inheritance even if we're skeptical perhaps even have our pessimistic moments about our ability to conserve that cultural inheritance. What you're saying is as a matter of justice, not just professionally, but as a dad, as a husband, you're going to go fight for it. And I think that's the answer. And, and having the privilege myself of traveling the country each month, uh, often each week, and, and meeting everyday Americans, you know, like the people that yeah. you and I grew up with, raised us, um, we are. Yeah. I know that we're going to do it. It's just the question is, can we summon the perseverance for the number of battles ahead to take back the country? That's really the question. The question, to your point, isn't whether we're going to battle. The question is, can we have the fortitude to sustain the fight? I, I think that's right. And I guess the the hopeful answer, uh, the, the, the wellspring of hope in that instance is um, – you know, men, men and women like my father, who uh, did actual hard and do today. My father is is past, but who do hard work every day for very little pay. Their names are never going to show up in the newspaper or on TV. Um, and that kind of perseverance, um, that kind of commitment um, to some, in the instance of my father, um, you know, uh, who never got to see the fruits of his labors, didn't, didn't get to see the kinds of cool things I, I did in the White House or any of that stuff or, or meet his grandchildren. So who work and labor uh, anonymously for a future they may never know. And so, look, if the guy can do that in the, in the mine up in North Idaho or, or my father on you know, job sites, construction sites all throughout you know, 114 degree weather in California, yeah, I, I think I can learn how to write a statute. Paper cuts are worth it. Yeah. Theo Wold, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yep. You're a great American. We look forward to having you back. Appreciate that. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Theo Wold as much as I did. As I told you, you would love him by the end of the episode. I know that that's true. You can keep tabs on him by just following Idaho politics. And of course, at some point when the bell rings, we know that he'll be ready for the next fight. Thank you for making this show possible. If you've not yet done so, please give us a rating. And the one socialist comment you'll hear me say is we only want five-star ratings. No, you, you rate it however you would like. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.
The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.